It is with great delight that I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. <laughs> there are four people still thrilled about being in Acts. There, thank you. George, um, George brought us back to Acts last week, but I haven't been there for a while, so I'm excited to be back. You're still excited to be going through Acts, amen? See, you know, I, I'm still a little boy inside. I need that encouragement sometimes. We're back in Acts. And um, we're talking about, wow, look at that list. Can you believe we've covered that already? I've um, pretty much gotten to the end of what I can fit on one PowerPoint slide. So next week will be a challenge for me. Pray for me. Can't make the font too much smaller. You won't be able to read it, right? We've been um, looking at what it means as a Christian to bring the kingdom of God to a world that is desperate for it. Desperate for his kingdom. What is it like? What characteristics? What things and challenges will we meet along the way? What are the sorts of things that we bring to people who are hurting and who deeply need God? We're going to add to that list again this morning from Acts chapter 9. I'm going to reread um, a bit what has been read before. I'm going to start at uh, verse 10 in chapter 9 and push through to the end of the chapter. So please, read along with me in your Bibles if you have them, or on the screen if you don't. Acts 9, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. Obviously, that, that would be you, Ananias. Come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. The next word in the text, I, it's hard for me to read it without cracking up a bit. We don't have in the written word how things were said, but sometimes we can imagine from context. And I imagine Ananias' tone, at least, with this word was, Lord, I mean, he doesn't just say, are you sure about this, God? He starts out by saying, Lord, I think because he knows he's going to press back a bit. So he uses a title of respect saying, all right, I respect you, Lord, but I don't think your idea is so much a good one. Lord. Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Apparently that early church had a bit of a spy network. They knew that Paul was coming for them. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, Galatians 1 tells us three years' worth of many days, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus... He had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. These are the very words of God. Amen. Amen. Biblical scholars have pointed out many similarities between Saul's experience in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. Those two stories we just read. I'm sure you caught some of them even as we read them. In both versions of Paul's ministry in Damascus and Jerusalem, at first there's this hesitation to believe this guy is really a disciple. And then in both stories, the early believers receive reassurance that indeed Paul's okay. Reassurance from God in Damascus and then Barnabas in Jerusalem. Next, in both stories, there's an emphasis on how Paul associated with, became friends with, became part of the community of believers. Saul immediately teaches and preaches shortly upon arriving in both places. And then in both places, there's a plot against Saul's life, ending in both stories, his escape, one in a basket over the wall from Damascus, and the second one probably on a boat from Caesarea to Tarsus. I give you those, not because I'm going to talk much about them, <laughs> but one more similarity I'd like to focus on in particular this week. And again next week. It, I thought I could do it in one, but every once in a while what I think I can do in one sermon, um, as you know, it can get a little long. And God will put on my heart not so fast. And uh, he did that this weekend. So I'm trusting that that's the Holy Spirit 
who in me and in you wants us to dwell on this topic more than one time. So I'm going to honor that intuition, trust it's from God, and tarry here at least a couple of weeks. What I'm talking about doesn't appear as a separate item on this list, but it's really there in the stories all the same, I think. First in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. In a word, it's forgiveness. It's the forgiveness that Saul receives from those earliest Christians. The forgiveness he receives from the very people he was intent on arresting, and in some cases even intent on putting to death. We see it first in Damascus with Ananias. God tells Ananias to go and help Paul restore his sight. You remember, Ananias is reluctant. Uh, God, Saul, do you know what he's done? You really want me to help him? And God says, yes, he's the one. And then Ananias goes and of all things calls Saul brother. And in verse 19, Saul spends time with the rest of the believers in Damascus. Ananias and the believers in Damascus follow God's lead and they forgive Saul. When Saul leaves Damascus and arrives in Jerusalem, same thing, reluctance at first, but with Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, vouching for him, both the apostles and the rest of the believers in Jerusalem follow God's lead, and they forgive Saul. Now, pause with me here just a minute and consider how extraordinary this is. Our tendency, my tendency, might be to read right through that story and fail to appreciate the amazing presence and power of forgiveness. I mean, this guy is the guy that we read a few weeks ago, remember, was muttering murderous threats against the believers. This is the guy that was the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council's hired gun. He was the guy who took the initiative, even, with the chief priest to get official papers to put more of these people in jail and to put more of them to death, these early believers. Saul is the same guy who oversaw Stephen's stoning. He saw to it that Stephen was killed for believing in Jesus. And by that event, this is the man really who literally caused believers to run, from their, run for their lives from Jerusalem, remember? Perhaps even out of the country. And so when God says to Ananias, go to him, for Ananias to go and call him brother? How extraordinary. And when Saul returns to Jerusalem, Galatians 1 again tells us, Peter welcomes him home, into his own home, Peter's own home, for 15 days and spends time with him. How extraordinary. Frankly, I'm not sure I could have done that. This man was responsible for so much pain. I would have struggled with, whatever happened to justice? Where's Saul's accounting for what he's done? Where's the punishment? Just forgive him? Just like that? Really? I'm not sure I could have done that. How about you? 
I think it's extraordinary that they forgave Saul. Today, there are many, both inside the church and outside the church, who are wondering whether that sort of extraordinary, supernatural, show-stopping forgiveness, that that spirit of forgiveness, is it still vital and alive in the church today? Thomas Long, a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, tells this story. I was standing one day at the circulation desk of the library at the seminary where I teach when a friend of mine, a professional pastoral counselor, approached carrying a bulky stack of books. Watching him struggle under his load, I asked him what he was doing, teasing him a bit in the process. What's a pastoral counselor doing with all those heavy books? Undeterred, he quickly answered, I'm doing some research on forgiveness. He shoved the books across the desk toward the librarian and dusted off his hands. I was surprised and puzzled. Research on forgiveness? I asked. What are you trying to find out? He thought for a moment and then he replied, I guess I'm trying to find out if forgiveness really exists or not. You know, I see so little evidence of it in my work. If forgiveness really exists, his remark staggered me a bit. Forgiveness is one of the centerpieces of the Christian faith. Words of forgiveness sing in the language of faith. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. How often should we forgive? Seventy times seven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgiveness, human and divine, is the heartbeat of grace. It'd be impossible to imagine the Christian faith without it. But here was someone who ought to know. Here was a pastoral counselor who no doubt works often to engender forgiveness. And he was wondering in front of God and all creation in the seminary library if forgiveness actually existed. Professor Long continues, Late one afternoon, I was driving down a busy street thoroughfare. The traffic light ahead turned red, and the surge of cars came to a halt. Moving across the crosswalk in front of me was a knot of young people on their way home from a nearby high school. They were out of class for the day, and they're in a good mood, talking energetically, laughing and teasing each other. One of them was carrying a blaster radio on her shoulder, which was thundering out something from Bruce Springsteen. The article's dated a bit. The point is, you couldn't miss these kids. However, the woman making a left-hand turn in a pickup truck evidently did miss seeing them. She plowed into the girl carrying the radio, knocking her to the pavement with fearsome force. The radio skittered across the asphalt, flying into pieces as it bounced. Several of us climbed quickly out of our cars and went over to the girl, who was fortunately more shaken and frightened than she was seriously injured. 
She was crying and scared, but she managed to remember her telephone number and asked us to call her mother. Somebody went to a nearby phone booth and did. Several minutes later, her mother arrived at the scene and went over to her daughter's side. The driver of the truck was just then finishing being interrogated by the police, and she came over to the mother and daughter. And clasping her hands with anxious dread, she begged for forgiveness. I didn't see you, she said with sincere regret. Honest to God, I didn't see you. I'm sorry. I am so sorry. At this point, the mother looked up, pointed a finger in the woman's face, and said, Our lawyer will be in touch. I wonder said the pastoral counselor in the library, does forgiveness really exist? That's what our culture does, right? Our hair trigger response usually is to sue rather than forgive, isn't it? Who are the Ananiasis and Barnabases today? We need them. Desperately, in church especially, we need the ABCs of forgiveness. The A of Ananias, which means grace. The B of Barnabas, which means encouragement. And the C of a community of forgiveness. Where are they? Who are they? Are they us? Does that extraordinary spirit of forgiveness still define the church today and define who we are in Christ Jesus as it did at the earliest church in Damascus and Jerusalem? Questions like that I'd like to spend some time pondering together. Let's begin pondering with a definition of forgiveness, shall we? There are different words in the Bible for forgiveness. I've listed for you on the screen a literal translation of some of the Hebrew and Greek words from the Bible. For example, in the Bible, to forgive means to lift up. It means to send forth in freedom or to pardon. It means to rescue in kindness, to cover over sin, and to release. If I were to try and come up with a more complete Webster's type definition of forgiveness, it might go something like this. Forgiveness is releasing a wrongdoer from punishment and releasing them even from the desire that punishment should take place. That second part that really gets you, doesn't it? Releasing someone even from the desire that they should be punished. That's especially difficult, isn't it? Overcoming even the desire that someone should pay somewhere for their actions against us. Why is it so difficult, often at least? Why is it often so difficult to forgive, do you think? For one, forgiveness is difficult, I think, because it involves suffering. Forgiveness means there's a hurt that we need to deal with. And that hurt, that suffering, makes it difficult to forgive. And the deeper the hurt, 
the more difficult it seems to forgive. A husband has an affair with a wife's with his wife's friend. Your father calls you worthless. A close friend tells someone a secret you told them, and they tell it to someone they know will use it against you. You're discriminated against because of the color of your skin. Someone commits a murder or rape or other horrible crime against you or someone you love. People you trusted and trust tell lies about you in order to discredit you. A close friend fails to come to your aid in times of trouble. A student takes a gun into a school and kills other students, maybe your own son or daughter. Our community knows that particular pain very well, don't we? And the suffering caused is intense. And the deeper the hurt, the more impossible forgiveness seems. A second reason it's difficult, I think, is to forgive is that it seems like we're giving away the farm. And when we forgive, it seems like we're giving up something so valuable. It seems like we give up requiring a satisfactory explanation. It seems like we give up forcing others to face what they've done to us. I think that's what makes it so hard. It seems like we're giving up so much. It seems like we're giving away something far too valuable, something that costs us too much. It seems like someone's getting away with something they shouldn't get away with. Our sense of justice, right, becomes deeply offended. And we're reluctant to allow things like mercy or closure or peace or healing to even breathe. Now, I've emphasized seems like on purpose. Because although it may seem like we're losing something valuable, my brothers and sisters, when we forgive, we're actually keeping ourselves from gaining something of far greater value when we don't forgive something we deeply need for you see when we fail to forgive we stay under the power of someone else we stay under the power of a past event an event that can never be changed right we become defined in part by the past sometimes to the extent that it cripples our ability to grow in the future, to grow in how we relate to others, and even in how we relate to the one who told us to forgive others as I have forgiven you. There's a recent movie out, Meet the Robinsons. How many of you have seen Meet the Robinsons? Yeah, see, mostly kids. Grown-ups, go see the movie. I give it thumbs up. You'll, you, will, you will chuckle at Meet the Robinsons. There's a scene... And Meet the Robinsons. I'd show it to you, but it's not out on DVD yet, so you have to put up with my paraphrase. There's a scene in Meet the Robinsons. There's time travel involved in the movie. And the arch-villain travels back in time and finds himself in the bedroom, in his own bedroom when he was a little boy. And he sees himself right there next to him in his boyhood bedroom as a boy. 
And the boy is sitting there on his bed, forlorn, because he's been hurt. He's been hurt by a team, his teammates of a baseball team, because he dropped the winning catch. And he's sitting there, hands folded, eyes downcast. And I don't remember the exact quote, but something like this came from that little forlorn boy. Oh, man, that just hurts so badly. I, well, maybe I just ought to, you know, get over it and move on. The arch villain turns to the boy who is himself as a boy, sits down on the bed and says passionately to himself as a boy, What do you mean, get over it? Don't you let that go. Dwell on it. Have it consume you and control you and feel that power. Suddenly I'm thinking Star Wars. The power of the dark side of the force is the advice that this arch villain gives to himself as a boy. It's a powerful part of the movie because you can see right there the boy followed the advice and ends up as an arch villain. So if you don't want to be an arch villain, forgive. No, that's not the... We may think that we're holding a wrongdoer to a standard of accountability when we don't forgive them. In reality, all we're holding is ourselves to the past, limiting ourselves, stunting our growth in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, limiting others from fully realizing the power of forgiveness because of His resurrection that we so loudly celebrated two weeks ago. When we forgive those who have hurt us, it does not empower the wrongdoer or the wrong. Instead, it strips the wrong of its power, and it thereby empowers us. Failing to forgive someone who hurts us slows us down, rather than frees them up. Forgiving frees us. When I forgive you for a wrong you have done to me, I refuse to allow that wrong to have any further decisive power over me. Professor Smeeds from Fuller Seminary once wrote an article including a story about Simon, Simon Weisenthal. Weisenthal was a prisoner in the Mount Mauthausen concentration camp in Poland. One day he was assigned to clean out rubbish from a barn the Germans had improvised into a hospital for wounded soldiers. Toward evening, a nurse took Weisenthal by the hand and led him to a young SS trooper, his face bandaged and pus-soaked rags, eyes tucked behind the gauze. He was maybe 21 years old. He grabbed Weisenthal's hand and clutched it. He said that he had to talk to a Jew. He could not die before he had confessed the sins he had committed against helpless Jews. And he had to be forgiven by a Jew before he died. So he told Weisenthal a horrible tale of how his battalion had gunned down Jews, parents and children, who were trying to escape from a house set afire by the SS troopers. 
Weisenthal listened to the dying man's whole story. First, the story of his innocent youth. And then the story of his participation in evil. At the end, Weisenthal jerked his hand away and walked out of the barn. No word was spoken. No forgiveness was given. Weisenthal would not and could not forgive. Decades later, in his 1976 book, The Sunflower, you can read where Simon is still haunted by and still unsure whether or not he did the right thing. Many believe he was haunted by his failure to forgive for the rest of his life. When we forgive, we release ourselves from the ghost of unfair past. And when we don't forgive, that unfair past haunts us. It sticks to us like glue. Failing to forgive is like keeping it alive in your soul an MP3 player that cannot be turned off. And it's on continuous play. And the painful scene is played over and over and over again. And each time it plays, it wounds you and me all over again. Forgiveness turns the MP3 player off. And finally... Healing, God's healing, is finally free to begin. Ananias, Barnabas, the apostles, and the early believers of the church forgave Saul. They even saved his life twice. And what was the result? Luke says it this way. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened. And encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. I wonder, I wonder if our forgiveness of others today might have the same result. Next week, we're going to explore forgiveness some more, as I've said. And to share with you the three main topics, because I don't do this often, I'd like to give you an assignment. And it's an assignment to think about these, especially that first one. Whether in your own quiet time, whether around the dinner table, whether in Sunday school or youth group, I invite you guys. What about that first question? What about forgiving people who don't even ask for forgiveness? I've stayed pretty carefully for today's lesson with examples of people, at least who showed they were repentant, yes, begged for forgiveness, initiated and came asking for it. That's difficult. But how much more difficult is the question, what about forgiving people who aren't interested at all in our forgiveness, who aren't even sorry, who haven't showed at all that they're not going to keep after it, if not to you know, you, to someone else? Should we forgive them? 
I'd love for you to wrestle with that. And then I'll share with you what God puts on my heart next week about that one especially. And then we'll talk about the danger of confusing forgiveness and reconciliation. Two very different things, in my opinion. And finally, we'll spend some time on how. How is it that we can accomplish this amazingly difficult task of forgiveness? Father in heaven, you have um, asked us to be a community of forgiveness. And I'm sure you knew when you asked that of us what a tall task that is. It's something, Father, that we cannot do without you. Father, I'd ask um, that you would be with all of us as we think about and pray about and ponder this week. What about this idea of forgiveness, especially for those that we especially feel might not deserve it? Father, what would you have us do with them? Father, I trust that uh, you'll bring that time to a fullness of learning and understanding one week from today when again we come back together. Father, I ask um, that you go and um, be with us all. Give us safe travels and journeys as we leave here and throughout this week. Help us, Father, to continually point to you. Father, we love you, and we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus the Messiah. Amen. If you would like uh, to continue in prayer with some eager to meet and to pray with you, come on up front, look for these cool badges that say, How can I pray for you? We'd be delighted to pray with you further. God bless you.